that's also what I did with distressed debt. Mm-hmm. I invested passively in a more of a joint venture with a guy when I first started and learned the business. And then of course, natural progression felt that I could do it on my own and hire an employee that knows more than I do. And that's just the way you scale and grow. Before we get into it, I want to introduce you to Groundbreaker, today's sponsor and partner. They are an all-in-one suite of tools for small to medium-sized real estate syndicators. They've got a special focus on real estate syndicators with 1 million to 100 million assets under management. They help you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Groundbreaker will help you scale your business without the need to scale your overhead. So they're going to help reduce your costs because of the admin team that won't need to be as large. And they're going to help you reduce your risk of data breach because of the security systems that they have in place. They'll help you increase your revenue by growing your assets under management because you're going to be allowed to focus on the things that are most important, like business growth and operations, not those administrative logistics. And ultimately, they're going to help you elevate your company's brand and professionalism and investor experience because your investors are going to enjoy having this platform with all their information versus however you're currently doing it. Three things specifically about Groundbreaker I personally like. One, super easy to use from an investor standpoint and from a general partner standpoint. Two, it allows investors and general partners to fund electronically, meaning that a limited partner can complete their entire subscription and funding cycle without leaving the platform. And on the general partnership side, for distributions, you can set it up so that you can trigger bulk ACH payments within the platform. And then the last thing I really like about Groundbreaker is it's, well, it's cost effective. It's healthy to the bottom line. Their basic plan allows sponsors to sign up for as little as $100 per month with no limits on deals or investors. And you can read all about their pricing on their website. Speaking of their website, it is groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe, J-O-E. And when you go there, groundbreaker.co forward slash J-O-E. You're going to get access to a pitch deck that the Groundbreaker team created so that you have a template should you want to use that and customize it for your own deal. So go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Alex Kogan. How you doing, Alex? I'm great, Joe. How are you? Well, I'm doing well, and I'm glad to hear that. A little bit about Alex. He's the president of Ashland Capital Fund. He's got 20 years of real estate experience. Portfolio consists of 1,700 apartment units, single-family rentals, commercial and developments. He's based in Chicago, Illinois, and he has now turned his focus towards student housing. So we're going to talk about his background, what his focus has been, and then what his focus is now. So with that being said, Alex, you want to first give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So I started in high-end design build building custom homes for clients in Southwest Colorado, ran that business for almost 20 years. 
and had a successful exit late last year in December. So pretty recent, but on a parallel track for a good 18, 17 years or so, I started developing single family portfolio, did some ground up development, townhomes, condos, small subdivisions. And then as of three years ago or so, pivoted into multifamily. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, how you and I met. And I've been doing that. I've been partnering with groups as a key principal, lending out my balance sheet. And let's see, distressed debt is another asset class I invest in. And then as of late, I've been pursuing some student housing deals. Excited about that opportunity as it's not tied directly to the markets and economy as much as multifamily is. So it's just another asset class to diversify for me. When you said you were doing developments for townhomes and condos, what are some differences from that versus the high-end custom homes? It's really completely different. The high-end custom homes, we always built on clients' land. There's really no risk per se. It's really, we're working for a fee. So transitioning into development is a whole other world. Of course, it's still construction, but you're assessing risk. You're assessing the market. So really, it took a completely different mindset and skill set, candidly, to do that. The common thread, of course, we're building. So it was interesting. It was good. And we rode the tailwinds of a great economy up until, of course, the recession of 08 and 09, and then basically seized all development activity and concentrated on custom homes and rode through the recession well. A lot of our clientele actually came from Texas and that market was doing very well. A lot of our clients were already sort of the tail end of their careers. They'd made their money, they put their money away. So they were still in a place to retire, build their retirement dream homes and continue down that path and not be too affected by the recession. You said you're now focused on Looking at student housing, what are some things you're doing now in student housing? We're pursuing a couple of different deals currently. It's a similar play, I suppose, to multifamily. What I like about it is in recessionary periods like we're likely heading into now with everything that's going on, a lot of people go back to school or they stay in school longer. So you've got that natural protection as opposed to, say, the A-class multifamily, where I think, you know, you could have some higher economic occupancy with that asset class. But student housing is an interesting play. So we're pursuing that. There's some opportunities out there. There's some groups that got over leveraged and looking to get out of their assets. So it's an interesting time. So that's what we're, I wouldn't say we're completely focused on that. It's just the second asset class in addition to multifamily that we're looking at. How are you coming across groups that are over leveraged? Where are you getting those connections from? We've made a great connection with a best-in-class property manager, and they, of course, have connections with owners all over. They're also an investor as well, as a property manager as well. So Mm -hmm. they are an interesting group where they understand the investment side as well as the management side, and they have a very specific buy box for a number of, of reasons with their business plan. But they're running into portfolios or individual assets that don't meet their buy box and I've developed a good relationship with them where they're bringing me those deals. So it's a win-win. They get to property manage the asset if we are successful in taking it down. So there's some good synergies in that relationship. 
So I've never bought student housing project. Educate me and perhaps some listeners on what would be a buy box, what components are in a buy box for student housing, and then what your buy box is compared to, say, the property management companies. Sure. So the first one would be pretty easy to answer. So the relationship that I have there, they only buy core A-class assets, and they have to be pretty significant size to execute their business plan and to basically comply with their investors' buy box in essence. So in terms of what I look for, I can buy a smaller deal. I don't have a specific buy box in terms of it has to be a large deal, although we can take down a large deal. We'll look at, for example, right now we're looking at an opportunity in about the $7 million acquisition range. That is considered somewhat small for some of the large players. They're going to be in the 15 plus million acquisition range. In terms of what we look for, and that's fairly consistent from whether you're buying large or small, you're looking for a successful school with growing enrollment. And that's pretty key today. To be successful, I think that's one of the biggest metrics. So not only does the asset have to be a, a good asset, you've got a school that's got a great sports program. So tier one schools, basically. So you look at that, you look at the asset itself, you look at similar dynamics are, you're of course looking at your rent comps, are you under markets? Amenities is also a big factor in terms of your rent growth and where you are in the market. So those are some of the big things that we look at. Based on your experience with high-end custom homes and townhomes and condos and investing in multifamily, what do you think from that experience is most relevant to help you be successful in student housing? I would say I've been fortunate that I've had a broad experience in different asset classes, and the common thread is real estate. So I don't know that there's one thing other than I may just have a broader view. I may look at different things. So I can't think of one major skill set other than just the broad experience. Let's narrow it down then. For the high-end custom homes that you did for 20 years and you said you exited successfully, what were some ways that your company differentiated itself from your competitors? That one is pretty easy. We were very early to the game in design build. So while a lot of my competitors were typical, what we call bid build, where they're bidding on plans through architects or through clients directly that have plans drawn, we adopted the design build model right out of the gates 20 years ago, where at first, we partnered with some outside resources. We'd outsource some of the design work, but really controlled the whole process from design to build. And then eventually became much more fully integrated with architect, interior designers. So that was certainly a key to our success. In addition, of course, doing great design and won more awards than anybody in the area in Southwest Colorado and organically grew. Building a great team. No surprise, when you become the largest in the area, you need a great team behind you. So I was fortunate to have a great team to do that with. But those were some of the great design, great team, the design build model that many people tried to follow, but few were successful in doing. You mentioned distressed debt. What have you done with distressed debt? That's been an interesting space. I started down that road, non-performing notes, basically. Mm -hmm. So buying defaulted mortgages 
in large pools and then working them out. So I have been doing more of a niche portion of the distressed debt, which is buying non-performing second liens. So rather than buying first liens, which it's a bit counterintuitive, but if you understand my business plan and the play that we've been doing, which is buying non-performing seconds behind a performing first. So I'll give you an example. If you have a $500,000 house, you might have $400,000 mortgage, you have $100,000 worth of equity. And then you also took out, say, $100,000 home equity loan to finish your basement. You fell on Mm -hmm. hard times, you stopped paying on your home equity, but you continued to pay in your first mortgage. Mm -hmm. So those are what I'm buying is the second mortgages. I like them because obviously it's been demonstrated that the borrower still has some financial capacity because they're paying on their first. Uh-huh. And because I'm buying the second lien, the non-performing lien or notes at such a discount, I have the ability to go back to the borrower, help them stay in their house and say, for example, you've been paying you know, $500 a month before you defaulted. Can you afford to pay $250 a month? So because I'm buying at such a discount, I can work with them, help them stay in their home and get them current. And that's been a really good investment class. It's not the easiest business to learn, pretty high barrier to entry. Yeah. But once you get it dialed in, it's a very interesting business model. What discount are you buying those second liens on? It's a broad range. It also depends on what state. Every state's got different foreclosure laws and timelines. So I would say anywhere literally from 5% of the unpaid balance up to 50% of the unpaid balance and everything in between. So wow, you literally have to underwrite each individual asset separately. How much equity does it have? How nice of a property is it? Because that, in essence, is your ultimate security. It's that asset because you can, of course, foreclose from a second position subject to the first. And then there's more of a qualitative analysis of the borrower profile. You really have to understand who the borrower is, look at their credit, look at their specific situation, and somewhat assess what is the percentage that that borrower can do a workout with you. Mm -hmm. So that goes into the pricing as well, of course. So you said 5% to 50% that you're paying. So just so I'm understanding correctly, Depending on the state, depending on the situation, if it's $100, you're paying between 5 to $50 for that second lien position. Yeah. Wow. So your discount is between 50 and 95%. <laughs> yeah. I've bought some assets literally where there's a lot of risk that I've even bought them at 1%. All right. Give us that example, that specific example. Tell us the story about that property. Something that you bid that low, <laughs> there is no equity, right? So. How much did you pay for it? That borrower is completely upside down. So it's one of those that you're likely not going to pursue. You might take that asset, put it on a shelf, and just wait until that borrower sells the house, and you may be in a position where you get a payoff. So that's obviously very high risk. But if you have a $100,000 unpaid balance, and it's still secured, and you're buying it for 1000 bucks, you could afford to just stick that in a drawer and just wait. Mm-hmm. versus other loans that have equity and the borrower is obviously more motivated to protect and keep that equity. They're obviously motivated to do a workout with you. So those you're going to pursue more aggressively and spend time placing that with a servicer, spending money, investing in whatever legal you need to invest in so that you can monetize that loan. 
I know you said you're buying large pools. So are the large pools of these defaulted mortgages, are they grouped into varying risk profiles or... No, no. They generally are just sold in a pool. So you get a spreadsheet with a bunch of assets and it's really you're doing your own grouping. You're assessing the risk and you're saying, okay, 20% of these are in a judicial state, New York, for example, and the foreclosure time is very lengthy and expensive. So I'm going to price that portion of the pool at whatever it is, 20 cents on the dollar versus say, for example, California loans, which is a non-judicial state and very quick foreclosure time, I may price those at 45 cents. So it's all over the board. And did, you say pretty... Cal- did you say California is quick? To... Yeah, yeah, believe it or not. That, uh, Cal- I, would, I would have missed that on a true false test. Right. <laughs> exactly. With all the legislation yeah. and everything that happens in, in California, it actually is a non-judicial state. So you can foreclose and get at the asset in literally 90 to 120 days. So it's much faster process in California. Tell us a story of a defaulted mortgage, either a pool of mortgages or an example or two where you've lost money. Sure had a recent loan that, unfortunately, we were pretty careful. I don't buy the really high risk loans, but in order to buy a pool of loans, inherently you have to buy some loans that are higher risk, Mm -hmm. but I try to keep those at a minimum. So I only honestly have one that was recent, a Kentucky loan that basically it foreclosed and we got wiped out by the first lien and completely lost. It was a $7,000 investment a pool of a million dollars that we took down. So that can happen, but if you're careful, that's pretty rare. Yeah. So how can you be careful and make that rare if you're buying a large pool of loans and it sounds like that's just going to happen during the course of business? Well, one, you're going to price them at a high risk price. So it's all modeled into it. Think of it as if you're buying a portfolio of single family homes, you know you're going to have some delinquencies in one home, right? Somebody stops paying rent, but you have the income from the other homes to offset that. It's really the same principle. I'm going to make money. I'm going to have home runs on some. I mean, I've had some that I've made 200% return on my investment, and then I have one that I lose $7,000. So you just price the risk into it. And then there's some people that specialize in unsecured and no equity loans. That's just their business model. So I would even resell some of those loans and just get my money back and focus on the good loans that I prefer to work. Okay. Tell us a story of, on the flip side, one that you've made the 200% or just done really well on, just a specific example. Sure. Just recently... I invested 113000 in an asset in California. The house is worth 270000 We unfortunately had to foreclose, got that house back. And up until just a couple of days ago, I had a contract for 270000 So you can do the math on that. That would have been a great exit strategy. Unfortunately, with what's going on in the world right now, that buyer fell out of contract. So we've got the house. It's worth 270. I could turn it into a rental. I'm hopefully going to sell it to somebody else. But you can see the return is huge if I can obviously monetize, which I'm sure I will. And that whole time frame was about seven, eight months. Okay. So let's talk about the team. I don't think you're the one tracking down all of these 
owners and having conversations based on what I know about you. So who's your team? How do you structure it? How are they compensated? That sort of thing. Sure. I'm basically on the acquisition side. So I'm developing relationships and finding the assets. Once I find the assets, I have an asset manager in California that works remotely. It's got 30 years experience in the servicing, the distressed debt space. How'd you find that person? Just the whole networking, talking to different people. And I met him and that's been a great relationship. So he's literally working out of his house. If you can think back to who introduced you to him, I'd love to know exactly how you found him. You don't have to name names, but just show us the breadcrumbs. I think the trail started on LinkedIn or I connected with somebody on LinkedIn and they had pointed me in his direction for just networking and that he may know sellers. And one thing led to another where you think you're going to buy an asset or get some referrals for sellers. And before you know it, you're talking to a guy who actually is an asset manager that may have excess time and be able to develop a relationship. So that's what we did. Started off as for him, I was somewhat of a side hustle in addition to other asset management work that he was doing. And as my portfolio grew, he's come on board nearly full-time with a little bit of consulting that he still does with outside funds and outside investors. Wow. So you were randomly reaching out to people on LinkedIn based on what they have in their profile, asking them about distressed debt? Yeah, I was specifically targeting sellers of distressed assets at that time Okay, and just happened to run it across a guy. So there's multiple ways that you can do it. So you also, of course, to answer your question fully in terms of the team, there's also third-party servicers that we mm-hmm. use. So they'll do some of the work and then my asset manager will serve an oversight with them as well as borrower outreach and talk to the borrowers as well. So it's really a small team. I'm a small little boutique firm, if you will, in that asset class, and I'm self-capitalized that I don't have investors in that world. So it's really a third bucket of my business plan, student housing, multifamily, and distressed debt. Based on your experience as a real estate investor, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Know the asset class well. It seems very obvious, but... In terms of investing in different assets, learn that asset class well before you invest. And if you have an opportunity to invest passively and learn as you go, I think that's a great way. And you're a prime example. I invested with you early on and got my feet wet in multifamily until I got comfortable enough to start looking at my own deals. And I think that's a great way. And that's also what I did with distressed debt. Mm-hmm. I invested passively in a more of a joint venture with a guy when I first started and learned the business. And then of course, natural progression felt that I could do it on my own and hire an employee that knows more than I do. And that's just the way you scale and grow. That's a pretty good formula for people. Invest passively to learn the ropes, plus build your ally group up so you can inform allegiances. And then you learn the business simultaneously as well as actively learning then go active and then hire someone who has more experience than you. But now you've got some experience and you know the ropes. You just don't know the intricacies of someone who's been in the business for decades. That's a really good formula. I'm glad that you walked us through that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? 
I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to do it anyway. So hopefully you are. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. Groundbreaker helps you increase productivity and investor satisfaction by automating fundraising, reporting, and investor relations through elegant and powerful workflows built by syndicators for syndicators. Go to groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe. That's groundbreaker.co forward slash Joe to get a free deal pitch deck template. Bob Malecki and his team at Resolution Capital Management partner with individuals to invest in distressed residential mortgage notes. If you're interested in doing a joint venture with them, where basically you invest alongside with them and sharing a portion of the profits based on how well that individual project goes, then go to rcm.company forward slash JV. That's rcm.company forward slash JV. All right. What's the best ever book you've recently read? A book named Life Scale, which is interesting. A book that I'm halfway through. Okay. Life Scale. Okay. Got it. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? Bad partner. Easy to say in the rearview mirror. It looked good on the front end, but I think more due diligence on the partner than the asset class is important. And I got myself in trouble a few years ago with, unfortunately, we unwound that well, but more due diligence on the partner than the asset. What are some questions, knowing what you know now, that you would ask prior to engaging in a future partnership? I think it's more time getting to know someone, really, as much as you can, learning how they think, definitely more reference checks. But I think it's time. And unfortunately, we're in a business that moves pretty fast, whether it's notes or multifamily or student housing. The deal comes up and it comes to you from a potential partner. So I've learned to slow down and only move forward when it feels right and have enough of a comfort level with a partner. So as you know, I'm a KP on deals and people bring me deals all the time and I really have to just slow that process down to get them to know better. On that note, how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing and get in contact with you? Ashlandcapitalfund.com is my website and my direct email is Alex with an I. Strangely misspelled A-L-I-X <laughs> You're not the one to blame for that. <laughs> That's <laughs> another story. Right. Okay. Fair enough. So Alex, thanks for being on the show, talking about your areas of focus that you've had and then now what you're focused on, the three areas with one of them being student housing and why you're focused on that and also talked about non-performing notes in your process there. Thanks for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever day. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Joe. Take care.